Our text for the sermon this Lord's Day is from Matthew 16:19. I'll begin with verse 17 just to pick up the context here. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Last Lord's Day, we saw that Christ builds His church by means of His promises. We looked at two promises in Matthew 16:18. The first promise being, Upon this rock I will build my church. That is, not upon the little rock, Petros or Peter, as the Popish Antichrist teaches, but rather upon the immovable rock, Petra, that is, upon Christ Himself. Thus, Christ is both the foundation of the church and the builder of the church. This is even the testimony of some of the most notable church fathers, among whom is Augustine, who wrote, and I quote, Therefore thou art Peter, and upon this rock which thou hast confessed, upon this rock which thou hast acknowledged, saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. Upon myself, who am the Son of the living God, I will build my church. Upon myself I will build, not myself Upon thee. The second promise made in Matthew 16 18 was this The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Against what? Against the church. What church? Not the visible church, which consists of both believers and hypocrite, as Rome teaches but the invisible church of the redeemed who cannot be moved, who cannot be removed as a living stone from the building of Christ's holy temple. Peter indeed needed to hear this particular truth. He needed to understand this truth. For in a short while, he would deny even knowing the Lord three times. He would deny the Lord. And yet he needed to know that the gates of hell would not prevail against him as a member, as a living stone within that invisible church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear ones, there is no flood in this life, whether death, 
persecution, sin, or the powers of hell that can separate a living stone that trusts in Christ alone for his eternal salvation from that rock, that rock of his salvation, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we come to the final way in which the Lord builds his church by means of his gifts. And as we shall see specifically, Christ builds his church by giving to his ministers the keys of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 16:19. The main points of the sermon today are the following. Number 1, what are the keys of the kingdom? Number 2, who is the subject of the keys of the kingdom? That is to whom are the keys given? And number three, who is the object of the keys of the kingdom? That is, for whom are the keys given? For whose benefit are the keys given? Again, this Lord's Day, as I mentioned last Lord's Day, we will be looking at some very central doctrines which are so significant to the Protestant Reformation, distinguishing Rome from the Protestants. May the Lord give us ears to hear, for this is not a dead faith. This is the living faith. This is faith from the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be alive to us today. Number one, then, the first main point, what are the keys of the kingdom? First of all, then, what are they not? Then we'll look at what they are. The keys of the kingdom of heaven, dear ones, are not the power to forgive sin, as is taught by the Church of Rome. Having falsely laid the foundation of the church upon Peter and and in all of his papal successors in Matthew 16, 18, the harlot church of Rome then proceeds to teach that to Peter and the other apostles were given the keys of the kingdom and through them to all the bishops and priests who have the approval, the ordination of the Church of Rome. Here Rome teaches that Christ communicated to Peter and the other apostles the power to forgive sin, which Rome derives from Matthew 16, 18. I should say Matthew 16, 19. And from John chapter 20, verse 23. Again, Matthew 16:19. Uh, the number of times that I read this verse today, you ought to have it memorized by the end of the sermon. Firmly fixed in your mind. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And... In a similar passage that conveys a similar truth, 
John chapter 20, verse 23, the Lord appears to the disciples after his resurrection and says to them, verse 23, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. And we'll come back to these passages shortly. I'm simply trying at this point to demonstrate how Rome builds upon this faulty foundation, namely upon Peter and all of the so-called papal successors. Of course, the Church of Rome says that the apostles could not have forgiven sin had Christ not first given them the power to forgive sin. But it is still the case that by means of apostolic succession, that bishops and priests, according to Rome, have been given the power actually, really, to forgive sin. Listen again to the words of Rome. Rome says that to the apostles was given the power to forgive sins. Rome says that to the successors of the apostles, namely the bishops and priests, is given the power to forgive sin. Now, did Christ give to the apostles the actual power to forgive sins committed against His holy law? Absolutely not. That power to forgive sin committed against God and against His holy law belongs solely, uniquely to God only. To God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. In Mark chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord Jesus had said in verse 5 to the paralytic, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Or to the one who was sick of palsy, I should say. Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, in verse 7, the Pharisees sitting by rightly reason when they say, Who can forgive sins but God only? The wrong reasoning is in not understanding that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God and had the prerogative and right to forgive sins. But they ask the right question. Who can forgive sins but God only? And then in verse 10, Jesus not only heals the man who is sick of palsy, but says in verse 10, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. 
Dear ones, only God can forgive sins. For sins against the law of God and the penalty for having broken God's law can only be forgiven and remitted by the one who is offended, namely God. In fact, the apostles never declared there's no record in all of the Bible where the apostles said to a repentant man, woman, or child, I forgive your sins and remit the eternal punishment which you deserve. You'll never find any such passage. To the contrary, the apostles always spoke of forgiveness of sin through one coming in faith to Jesus Christ, the Advocate, who is the Advocate with the Father, who is the great High Priest for believing sinners, rather than to some earthly priest. Listen to what the apostles, listen to what the Lord Jesus said, was to be the mission, the message of the apostles, what they were to do as they went forth into all the world in Luke twenty four forty seven. <clears throat> and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus didn't say, go to the priest in the confessional and if you have contrition and if you have confession and satisfaction, then there will be absolution of your sin. No, it is to be preached that in Christ's name there is forgiveness. To believe in Christ and to confess one's sins unto Jesus Christ is forgiveness. The same is taught in Acts 13.38, which I'll simply note but not read. In 1 John chapter 2, again, Jesus does not say... <clears throat> that a priest is our advocate to whom we must confess our sins, but rather says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is our advocate. It says in 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, not to the priest, if we confess our sins, to God. He, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what about passages that command us to forgive one another? If God alone can forgive sins, what about all the passages we find in the Scripture which teach us and command us to forgive one another? For example, in Matthew 6.15, But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Or Matthew 18, verse 35. <clears throat> 
So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. And Ephesians 4.32 And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Is this authority for going to a priest to confess our sins and for him to Forgive us of our sins to grant us forgiveness. Dear ones, this is not a priestly forgiveness that we have read of in these three passages, but a brotherly forgiveness. The kind of forgiveness spoken of in these passages has to do with a human forgiveness, not a divine forgiveness. A human forgiveness which one gives to another who sins personally against him. You see, dear ones, by mere human forgiveness, sin against God is not blotted out, nor eternal punishment canceled. Such a human forgiveness simply promises to the one who has offended that I will not remember that sin against you anymore. I'll not bring it up to others against you. I'll not bring it up to you, yourself, against you. And I'll not bring it up into my own mind and dwell upon it against you. Because the matter is settled. Reconciliation has occurred between us. And I'll not continue to unbury or to uncover that which is buried and covered in forgiveness. You know, if only this one truth were practiced in all of our homes much more consistently, how much more happy and holy our homes would be if we simply learned this human forgiveness. When one repents and we say, I forgive you. When they come and say, please forgive me, and we extend and say, I forgive you for what you've done. To blot it out of our mind as best as we can, but even if we can't totally forget it, we do not bring it up. We do not make an issue out of it anymore. Oh, how that would improve relationships within the church as well. And it is commanded by the Lord. It's really not an option anyway. And we sin when we do bring up matters that we have already forgiven. The person who has sinned against another has also, dear ones, sinned against God. You cannot violate commandments 5 through 10 without sinning against God because all of the commandments, all of God's moral law, are sins not only committed against our brother or our neighbor, but are sins ultimately committed against God Himself. And so the Lord calls us not only to live at peace with Him by confessing our sins unto Him, 
and receiving His forgiveness. But He also commands us to live at peace as much as is possible with our neighbor and with our brother by going through this particular process. I submit to you, dear ones, that we cannot enjoy communion with the Lord Jesus Christ while we refuse to forgive those who have sinned against us and seek our forgiveness. It will affect our communion with Christ. It will affect our fellowship with Christ. The Lord says He will not forgive us our trespasses if we do not forgive others who have trespassed against us. That fellowship and communion with Christ will definitely be affected. So this, these passages that deal with forgiving one another, again, they are no objection to the fact that God alone forgives sin committed against Him and against His holy commandments. But what about passages that speak of a public confession of sins? Do those passages warrant going to a priest to confess our sins? For example, in James 5.16, there we read, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. Well, if this is talking about confession of sins, which it is, it is confession of sins not merely to the priest then, but it is confessions as confession of sins from the priest to the parishioner. Confess your sins or your faults one to another. It's not simply going one direction here. It's going both ways. This is not a priestly confession, again, but a brotherly confession of sins. What about the passages as in Matthew 3.6 where it speaks of the multitudes coming to John the Baptist confessing their sins? Or in Acts 19.18 where the church, those who believed out of Ephesus who had been involved in these strange, curious arts, ma uh, magic, <clears throat> sorcery, had various books and they, they came Confessing their sins, it says. Well, again, this is not the duty that one performs before a priest, but the duty we owe to those that we have indeed sinned against, perhaps in a public manner. If we have been involved in some type of scandalous sin in our lives, yes, it is appropriate to come before the whole congregation and to confess our sins because we have not only sinned against God, but again against His church. And to confess our sins is absolutely appropriate. Or if we have sinned against one another personally, it is appropriate to go to the one we have sinned against to confess our sin. And so these passages, again, are not in any way speaking of some type of private confession made in a confessional booth where the priest absolves the penitent man or woman or child 
of his sin and remits their eternal punishment. Nothing of the sort is taught here. So we see what the keys of the kingdom are not. What are the keys of the kingdom then? Well, the keys were used in a very literal sense as they are used today. They were used back then in a, in a very literal sense as they are used today to open or to lock a door. In Judges 3.25, Ehud slew King Eglon and he took the key and locked the door to the parlor. And after a long period of time, the scripture says that his servants came in and took the key and unlocked the door to gain access into the parlor. Thus, he who lawfully possessed keys to a door had lawful authority to open or to close the door. However, the possession and use of keys also came to be used symbolically, not only literally, but symbolically in the Scripture for authority to rule. <clears throat> From our New Testament passage we read from Revelation chapter 3 today, you probably remember what Christ said in Revelation 3, 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. Now, did Jesus Christ have a literal key? No, it's a symbolic key. What does it symbolize? It symbolizes authority, Christ's authority over the house of David. Where does this originally come from, this, this uh, image here, this symbol? Well, in Isaiah 22, Verse 22, chapter 22, verse 22, here we see God speaking of replacing a man by the name of Shebna, <clears throat> who was over the house of David. Now, this was not in the time of David. This was during the time probably of Hezekiah. But it was still considered David's house. David's kingdom, David's tabernacle, whatever uh, phrase one wants to use, this referred to uh, David's uh, kingdom. And so, Shebna, because of his unfaithfulness, is said to be replaced. And in verse 22, Eliakim is said to replace him. And it says, And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, upon the shoulder of Eliakim. So he shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. <clears throat> Here we see that government, as it were, authority, as it were, is committed into the hands of Eliakim. Kim, 
who is like a faithful steward, who is like a faithful governor, prince within the house of David. In fact, this idea of laying the, the key, I will lay the key upon his shoulder, it says in Isaiah 22:22. If we turn to Isaiah 9:6, which is a prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus, it says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government is symbolized in the key that is upon his shoulder. Here we see from these various passages, dear ones, that Christ is given by the Father the authority to rule the house of David, which is his house, for he is the greater David. That is his church. This is the same thing as the apostles were talking about in Acts chapter 15. There it doesn't speak of the house of David that will be restored, but the tabernacle of David. It says in Acts 15, verse 15 and following, this is James speaking at the Council of Jerusalem, and to disagree the words of the prophets as it is written, After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. And so the house or the tabernacle of David or the house of David here is to be restored. It had fallen into disrepair. But Jesus Christ comes as the builder and restorer of his house. A house over which he exercises power and authority. And just as the house of David refers to the church of Jesus Christ, so does the kingdom of heaven refer to the church of Jesus Christ when it speaks of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Remember in Matthew chapter 13, the Lord gives parables there that relate to both the visible and invisible aspects of Christ's church as the gospel is preached. We find also in Colossians 1.13 that we have been transferred out of the dominion of Satan and into the kingdom of his dear son. The kingdom of heaven, dear ones, does not refer to the kingdom of God's providence over which he rules all things for his own glory. Nor does the kingdom of heaven here refer to the kingdom of glory which is the kingdom prepared for his saints in heaven. But rather, the kingdom of heaven here refers to the kingdom of his grace, the kingdom of Christ's church, over which he is king. 
So you see, dear ones, the reason Christ can give the keys of the kingdom is because He lawfully possesses them as God's anointed prince over His church. The only reason He can give the keys is because they are His by divine right. They are His because of mediatorial right. He is our prophet, priest, and king. He alone possesses the authority over His church. And He alone delegates that authority to His stewards and to His servants. Therefore, listen very closely, there is no lawful use of the keys of Christ's authority without His revealed will. Without His revealed word, there is no lawful use of the keys of the kingdom. And any use of the keys without Christ's revealed word is an unlawful seizure of Christ's authority. For only Christ has an absolute authority in His church. Those who are His ambassadors only have a conditional authority. Those who are His ambassadors only have a ministerial authority. Authority conditioned upon the revealed will of God is found in the Scriptures. Not an absolute authority as Christ has. And that's why as we look at Matthew chapter 16, when it says, when the Lord says, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth, notice this next phrase, shall be bound in heaven. Quite literally, shall be having been bound in heaven. In other words, whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall already have been bound in heaven. In other words, we only as ministers who are acting lawfully, confirm what Christ has already bound in heaven. And the same thing holds true. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, shall be already loosed in heaven. Shall be having been loosed in heaven. It can only be loosed because it is loosed according to the authoritative word of Christ as is revealed in the Scriptures. That means that the authority that ministers possess is indeed a conditional authority, not an absolute authority. And I would submit to you, dear ones, that any usurped authority that lawfully belongs to Christ, if it is usurped from Christ, seized unlawfully from Christ, is no authority at all. 
but a pretended authority. For Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.8 that we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. We cannot do anything. What he's talking about is in the context of discipline. We cannot exercise discipline against the truth, but only for the truth. We have no authority apart from the truth. A conditional ministerial authority. And the term Antichrist refers to the one who has preeminently seized the authority of Christ unto himself. That's why we find in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, he authoritatively seats himself in the church of God where Christ alone ought to be seated. He seats himself in the temple of God, it says, and takes upon himself the prerogatives of Jesus Christ. Dear ones, any minister or elder can play the role of Antichrist by introducing new doctrine, by introducing into worship something which Christ has not authorized, or introducing a form of government into Christ's church which the Lord has not revealed in His Word. Such minister, such elder, has played the role of Antichrist in usurping Christ's authority. Now notice, as we consider and continue to consider, what are the keys of the kingdom here? Notice that Christ does not give a single key of authority, but rather gives keys of authority. It's in the plural. I give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. Now, there are two keys of authority by which the Lord here builds his church. First of all, the key of knowledge. In Luke chapter 11, verse 52, the Lord condemns the scribes for having taken away the key of knowledge. Woe unto you, lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. He took away the key of knowledge. You see, whereas the scribes had taken away the key of knowledge by introducing the inventions of man into the church of God, those who are lawfully given the key of knowledge by Christ are appointed to use that key by proclaiming in the name and in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ the whole counsel of God by which the Holy Spirit will bring the elect unto Christ and will grow up the elect in the knowledge of Christ. You see, this is the key of knowledge that is spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where the, Lord said, or where the Apostle Paul says that the Lord has given to me and to us as ambassadors of Christ, the, the message of reconciliation, to be reconciled unto God. 
This is the key of knowledge in authoritatively declaring on behalf and in the name of Christ the whole counsel of God. This is what Timothy, or what Paul meant when he spoke to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning with verse 24. And the servant of the Lord, and again, this servant of the Lord is the minister. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. See, the, this is his ministry, to, to use the key of knowledge in instructing others, even those who oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to acknowledge the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Beloved, <clears throat> this key, the key of knowledge, refers to the authoritative proclamation of Christ's ambassadors. Under the key of knowledge is the authoritative declaration of Christ's word concerning doctrine and worship. Here we see the priority placed upon doctrine. How we must have a heart, dear ones, to know the teaching of Christ. For how can we know Christ? How can we truly love Christ? How can we obey Christ if we do not know Christ and His teaching? If we do not understand His truth? Without the use of this key, the key of knowledge, there will be utterly uh, there will be utter futility in exercising the next key which Christ gives, which is the key of discipline. This is why it is so important that candidates for the ministry and for the eldership be well grounded in the truth. That they be confident in the truth, that they be committed to the truth and willing to suffer whatever, even to the point of their own lives, for the sake of the truth. The Romish church, dear ones, will never fall while Protestants remain so divided over what actually is the truth. The key of knowledge is, in fact, that which the Lord has given to his ministers to declare to his church authoritatively the whole counsel of God to unify the church, to bring the church together, not to divide the church. The second key is the key of discipline or the key of jurisdiction, sometimes it is called. This key we find in... Matthew 16:19 <clears throat> uh, Matthew 16:19 refers actually to both keys, but the key of knowledge and the key of discipline, because it is in the plural. But I would have you again note, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
the same teaching, the same word is essentially made known in Matthew chapter 18, verses 17 and 18 as well, speaking of discipline and how to restore a brother. When one sins against a a brother personally, and it's not something that can be merely covered in love but must be dealt with, the Lord Jesus says to go to that person privately, to seek to be reconciled privately. But eventually, if that brother will not hear, then bring two or three witnesses and continue to urge him to repent. Continue to urge him to confess his sin. But if he will not repent, then to bring it to the church. Tell it to the church, but if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. That is discipline that is brought against that particular man. And notice verse 18. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Applying the key of discipline by way of, in this case, an excommunication from the church. The same key of discipline is also referred to in John chapter 20, which we alluded to earlier, where the Lord Jesus says to his disciples after his resurrection, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Again, this is not saying that a minister has the power to forgive sin. What it is saying is that by way of his declaration of the truth, that he calls those who are truly repentant to confess their sins, those who turn from their sins into Christ and seek Christ's forgiveness, he can declaratively say that their sins are forgiven. He does not himself forgive, but he can declaratively say that their sins are forgiven if their faith and trust is in Jesus Christ. And so, basically, dear ones, the key of discipline is the application of the key of knowledge to the members of the church. What they know in the key of knowledge, they are to apply. And one of the ways to help members of the church to apply what they know is by means of the key of discipline. In other words, that truth which Christ has revealed in His Word is to be practiced by the members of His church. It is not simply to remain up there and then them carelessly go on their own way doing whatever they choose to do. It is to be practiced. The key of discipline encourages members to love and obey the Lord by practicing the truth of Christ in their lives. 
The key of discipline, dear ones, is applied by loving exhortation and humble rebuke, first of all, as in Titus 1.9, where we find these words, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Speaking to, to Titus as an elder, as a minister, that he is to hold fast the faithful word, that he may be able by sound doctrine to exhort, that's applying by way of the key of discipline, to exhort, but also to rebuke in Titus 2.15 when that is necessary. These things speak and exhort, Paul says to Titus, and rebuke with all authority. Uh, an authoritative rebuking coming from a minister of Christ. It's also, a key of discipline also involves establishing a church government appointed by Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, Neglect not the gift that is in thee which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Laying on of hands by the presbytery. This as well is involved in the key of discipline for Discipline is not effective. It cannot be practiced and worked out without a government. There will be no discipline within the family without a family government. There will be no discipline within the state without a state government. And there will be no effective discipline within the church without a church government. And here we see that, that Timothy was ordained and set apart to his office by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Key of, uh, key of uh, discipline is also displayed by lawful censures. Lawful censures, as we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where there was a man who was living with his father's wife, and he was turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his soul may be saved at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Censures as well. Censures not only are excommunication, censures are rebukes, admonitions. Censures are as well suspension from the Lord's Supper as well as excommunication. And finally... The key of discipline is, is practiced within the church by rendering judgments that will preserve the peace, purity, and unity of the church as in Acts 15. When there was a problem within the church in Antioch, it could not be resolved there. The, the particular matter as to whether Gentiles ought to be circumcised was brought before 
the church of Jerusalem. And there the elders, the ministers, the apostles gathered together to to render a judgment in that particular case so as to preserve the, the peace, the purity, and the unity of the church. I would say that although the key of knowledge has a necessary priority, the key of discipline, dear ones, is necessary to a church that is well-ordered and growing in the grace of Jesus Christ. Think of what a home is like where children are taught the truth but not expected to live according to the truth. It's a home that's going to be in disaster. Such a family is courting enmity within the home. Such a family is courting hypocrisy that it's okay to believe something but not practice it. Such a home is is courting independency. It doesn't matter whether there's any uh, authoritative lines here. You go out and simply do what you want to do. Such a family is courting selfishness, not thinking of the family as a whole. Such a family is courting looseness with regard to the truth of Christ. And it is ultimately courting disaster. Christ is given the key of discipline as, dear ones, an expression not of his hatred for the church, but as an expression of his love for the church. His love for every member of the church. Therefore, this key of discipline ought always to be used in humility before God and in love to its members, whether it's used with regard to the individual life of the member, the family life of the member, the business life of the member, the church life of the member, or the national life of the member. For it is intended to express, dear ones, Christ's great love for the members of his church. We read in Revelation chapter 3, those whom the Lord loves, what? He rebukes and chastens. And one of the ways he chastens those whom he loves is through the key of discipline. The last two questions will go rather quickly here. The second main point is, who is the subject of the keys of the kingdom? That is, to whom are the keys immediately given? Well, again, the keys are not given to Peter alone. For though we find in Matthew 16:18, I'm sorry, in Matthew 16:19 that it says, "And I will give unto thee, that is unto thee, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou, Peter, shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou Peter shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Though that is very specifically directed to Peter, I would suggest it is directed to Peter as representative of the other apostles for two chapters later. In Matthew 18, verse 18, the Lord Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, that is all of you, 
apostles, whatsoever ye, the apostles, shall bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye, the apostles, shall loose on earth, shall be loosed in heaven. So it's not given to Peter alone, the keys of the kingdom. The keys, dear ones, are not given to the apostles alone. Not only not to Peter alone, but they're not given to the apostles alone. For in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, this has to do with any church. How to remedy a scandal or an offense within the church. It doesn't say bring it to the apostles. It says bring it to the church. Again, I would submit to you that the church here has to do with that Presbyterial church, the church represented by its elders, by its ministers, to bring it before the assembly, the body of that representative body. <clears throat> Furthermore, we find that there are others than the apostles exercising the keys of the kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 5, the elders, the ministers in the church of Corinth are to exercise the keys of the kingdom, the key of discipline against the particular individual who was living with his stepmother. Again, in Acts 15, it was not only the apostles who gathered together at the council of Jerusalem and ruled, but it was the, the apostles and the elders together so that they jointly exercise the keys of the kingdom together. <clears throat> Thirdly, the keys of the kingdom are not given to the individual members of the church, as is taught in independency. Dylan's individual members may not preach unless they are sent from the church according to Romans chapter 10, verse 15. And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. We can also see that all the members, individual members of the church are not given the keys of the kingdom because women are expressly forbidden from teaching or preaching in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. And I would assume that if women are forbidden from teaching and preaching authoritatively and exercising the keys, that children would be as well. Furthermore, individual members may not administer the sacraments. Only ministers, only church officers administered baptism and the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. In fact, in Matthew chapter 18, where the apostles, as Christ ascends into heaven, 
are given this commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. There you have, dear ones, the administration of the sacrament of baptism and the preaching of the word authoritatively given to the apostles. But does that apply to others than the apostles? Certainly it applies to others than the apostles. It applies to ministers as well. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The apostles didn't live unto the end of the world. Ministers do, however. They are specifically given the authority to teach and to administer baptism. Thirdly, individual members may not ordain officers in the church. As we noted in 1 Timothy 4, verse 14, Timothy had hands laid upon him by the presbytery, not by individual members of the church, but by the presbytery, by the elders of the church. And fourthly, individual members may not censure the obstinate nor remove censures from the repentant. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that was committed not to the whole, but to the many. Not to the whole body, but to the many. According to 1 Timothy 1.20 Of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Again, a minister, an apostle. Hebrews 13, 7 and verse 17 speaks of members of the church obeying the leaders of the church, following them because it is for their welfare to do so. So for these reasons, the keys are not given to the individual members of the church. The keys of the kingdom finally are given by Christ to the officers of the church who ministerially rule on Christ's behalf. And here, in Matthew 16, 19, Peter and the apostles represent those who are lawfully commissioned by Christ. I would again remind you, this authority is always a conditional authority as long as the ministers and rulers rule according to Christ's word. Otherwise, they have no lawful authority from Christ to rule, but only a pretended authority. And the last main point, who is the object of the keys of the kingdom? That is, for whom are the keys given? For whose benefit are the keys given? There was the intended object of the keys is not the visible church which consists of both believers and hypocrites, but rather the intended object of the keys is the invisible church upon earth which consists of Christ's redeemed ones. That is, those for whom Christ purchased salvation. 
The benefits of the new covenant, dear ones, are intended for all of Christ's redeemed. The new heart, the law being written upon their mind and their heart are blessings and benefits intended for believers, for those who are the redeemed of Jesus Christ. And since all of the ordinances given by Christ to the church are spiritual and intended for the spiritual benefit of the redeemed of the Lord, hypocrites who are members in the visible church have no intrinsic inward right. Listen closely. Hypocrites who are members of the visible church, not of the invisible church, but of the visible church, of this outwardly professing church, have no intrinsic or inward right to the preaching of the word, nor to the administration of the sacraments, nor to the benefits of church discipline. The keys are not intended for the reprobate. The keys are intended for God's elect, those for whom Christ suffered and died. These are means by which the inward benefits of the covenant of grace are applied to the salvation and the sanctification of God's elect. Well, the question arises, should hypocrites or those who are not God's elect hear the preaching of God's word, be administered the sacraments, or receive church discipline? And I would respond by intrinsic or inward right, no, they should not. But God has not given to ministers and elders the ability to determine who are the elect, truly. Therefore, God has commanded us to administer the keys of the kingdom to all who profess the faith in Jesus Christ and to their children, whether they are one of God's elect or not. Whether we can understand or know that. In fact, we cannot ultimately know that. Therefore, hypocrites like Judas Iscariot and Simon Magus have an extrinsic outward right by way of their outward profession of faith and may even receive certain influences of the Holy Spirit. For example, in the life of Judas, performing miracles. Quite an amazing feat, but not regenerate, not one of God's elect. Or conviction of sin, but not to true repentance or restraint of sin. But they cannot receive, dear ones, the benefits of salvation. The benefits of redemption cannot be applied to them by the Holy Spirit. All those who are God's elect will respond to the faithful administration of the keys of the kingdom out of sincere faith in Christ and a fervent love to God. And all those who are not elect and yet outwardly hear the preaching and outwardly receive the sacraments and church discipline 
only bring greater condemnation upon themselves because they will not believe. In Hebrews chapter 4, and I close with this, we are warned by the example of Israel. The apostle says, Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. That is, unto Israel the gospel was preached. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. How do we make our election sure? One of the ways, dear ones, is to love and appreciate the keys of the kingdom. One of the ways is to, to receive the preaching of God's word, the administration of the sacraments, the administration of church discipline with appreciation, with thankful hearts, to demonstrate, to pray for the minister's and elders who, who use the keys of the kingdom. To make their job a joy by submitting to their lawful authority. These are ways in which, in fact, we can be unlike Israel who did not receive the key of knowledge because the word was preached unto them, but not by mixing faith with the word. As you hear the word preached, even today, dear ones, you can make your election sure by mixing faith with the word that is preached, by being sincere, by being fervent, by taking the word and applying it in your lives and not simply leaving it up here. where there are cobwebs and where there's dust because it's not being used, but to practice it in your lives. Let us cherish, dear ones, the keys of the kingdom. This is another way by which Christ builds His church. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Thou hast given to us doctrine this Lord's Day that is not easy necessarily to understand. And we pray, Father, that as the key of knowledge has been exercised, that our Father, Thou would send Thy Spirit to apply it to our hearts and lives and that Thou would give to us faith to receive and to hear and to obey and love, O Lord, in our hearts for Thy Word, for Thy truth. We ask our Father that, that we would be like children, that, Father, we would not shrink under the key of discipline that we would not run away 
O Lord, through the use of the key of discipline, but that we would understand that the key of discipline is the hand of our Lord who loves us, who wants us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. We ask our Father that Thou would would help us, therefore, as Thy people this day, to be faithful and praying, O Lord, as, as the elders of the church, the ministers of the church, as the presbytery, to seek to, to follow Thee and obey Thee, to, obey, to uphold the arms of the ministers and elders of the presbytery, to intercede for them, O Lord, in their weaknesses, we pray, Father, that, that Thou would, would bless, O Lord, our congregations. That Thou would build them and add to them, Lord, as these keys are used to build the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. 
The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.